Welcome to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. Enjoy the message. We're in a series called Encounters with Jesus. We've seen various peoples that have encountered Jesus Christ when he was here on earth and the difference that he made in their life. He left no one the same. Remember our key verses, uh, John 1, 1 and 2, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, the the Logos. It simply means to, to be the logic. In the beginning was the logic or the values or the human purpose or the source of significance. That's who Jesus was in the beginning and is still today. And when John penned this opening line of his biography of Jesus, the Gospel of John, he made this profound statement that in the beginning, the meaning of life already existed. So our meaning of life can be found when we connect to him, when we encounter Jesus. You know, today I want to talk to you about a time where Jesus dealt with shame. Now, you've experienced, no doubt, shame. It's different than guilt. Guilt is something that rises in us that makes us want to confess to God and ask for his forgiveness. But shame is a little bit different than that. Brent Brown, who is an author and a professor and also does some great talks on TED, TED Talks, you might want to find her there, said these words, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. In her book, Dare to Lead, she talks about the impact of shame upon a person's life. And if you're a note taker, you could write this down, that that shame is the sense of being isolated, unwanted, unaccepted, and unloved. And shame is never anything that God wants us to possess or hold on to. Again, guilt can cause us to be convicted. Shame can cause us to feel condemned of no value at all. In the Psalms, David gives us a glimpse to the feeling of shame. And in our Tuesday night Psalm study, we looked at this not too long ago. Psalm 32, verse 3 to 5, it says, When I refused to admit my wrongs, I was miserable, moaning and complaining all day long, so that even my bones felt brittle. Day and night, your hand kept pressing on me. I felt shame rising, and my strength dried up like water in the summer heat. You wore me down. Now, it wasn't God that brought shame to David. It was David's recognition of his own sin and wrongdoing before God that went unconfessed and therefore unforgiven. Jesus cares deeply about our shame. But what about smaller things? I mean, we think about Christ dying on the cross for the whole of humanity. But what about you and a smaller sense of shame? Does Christ care about that? Well, my answer is yes. And I want us to think about the time where Jesus turned water into wine, an encounter with Jesus. It happened at a wedding party. And in order for us to fully see the entire story, we have to understand 
why running out of wine at a wedding was a big deal. It was far more than bad manners or, or a tight budget. Ancient communities put far more emphasis on the community and the family at a wedding than they did on the bride and on the groom. It was a coming together of the community as a celebration. And sadly, the bride and groom got some focus, but the most focus went to the community itself and the families itself of the two coming together, the bride and the groom's family. The weddings weren't just about the couple's happiness, but about the family, the extended family, and the community feeling happy at the celebration. See, Jesus grew up in a culture of honor and shame. You were either honored and elevated or shamed and put down. There was no middle ground. And wedding parties were for the entire community. Okay, so dads out there, think about this. You'd have to invite the whole community, like invite all of the church members to your, to your daughter's wedding. It'd be pretty expensive. But this is what they did. So let's look at John chapter 2. You know, John 1 says, in the beginning, it was Jesus, the meaning of life. And now in John chapter 2, we see that on the third day of uh, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee, Jesus's mother was there. That's important. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to them, they have no more wine, woman. Why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Let me just stop there for a moment to say, here's Jesus' mom telling Jesus what to do. Hey, son, take care of the problem. I mean, she knew that he was God. Uh, remember, she, she's, she's the Virgin Mary. I mean, she, she had this immaculate conception happen through her life. But Jesus responds with, not disrespect, but my hour has not come yet for my life as God to be revealed to those around us. So reading on, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons each. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water so they will be filled uh, and they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants had drawn water, uh, drawn the water new. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. Now, some scholars have always wondered, is this alcoholic wine? I've heard preachers say, no, this was not fermented. No way. It could have been fermented as they filled the water pots and walked from here to there. But I'm going to tell you, it was alcoholic wine. And how do we know this? Well, they would serve the best wine first and people would get a little bit intoxicated and then they would bring the cheap stuff out at the end when their taste buds weren't as strong as they were in the beginning. And so here we are now doing the opposite. They've run out of wine and now they're serving the best wine at the end. The best wine. 
Now, what Jesus created here from water was not a cheap stuff. This was good stuff. So good that the master of the banquet said, man, this is really amazing wine. And John 2.11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is the first miracle. And I've often preached this at weddings. That Jesus decided to do his first miracle at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. And all the people say, isn't that great? Jesus loves weddings. Yes, but isn't that great? Jesus cared about the shame of the family of the bride and the groom. Wedding was a time to, to feast and a time to have good wine together. And guess what? They had run out and it was bringing shame upon them. Does Jesus care about our shame? Absolutely. And we're revealing his glory here means that this encounter with Jesus gave all in this community, not just his disciples, a glimpse of who he was. No one had ever seen such a miracle before or since. Now, we live in wine country, man. If we could turn water into wine in Lompoc or the Santa Rita Hills, people would, would say, how did you do that? And we would have to say, it was Jesus. And that's what they did here. It was Jesus who created this miracle. It's more than simply a story. This event shouts astounding, life-changing truth. And because we're not Jewish, we might miss the story inside the story. First, we already understand that running out of wine was a, a major shame moment. And Jesus' intervention rescued this couple and their family from the shame and embarrassment. Jesus cares that much. And secondly, notice the jars that Jesus ordered to be filled. These jars were filled with water, but what were they used for? They were used for religious and ceremonial washing. These stone jars symbolize for the people that they're being cleansed and being acceptable before God. Don't, don't miss that. The stone jars he used were connected ceremonially to what God had asked them to do in order to be clean before him. Jesus had them completely filled to the brim. In other words, <clears throat> excuse me, he wants to encounter all of our shame and all of our guilt and all of our wrongdoing and take care of it for us. The symbol represented a need to be clean and acceptable to God, and it was filled with, with, with water to the point of understanding that there was nothing else that could be added to it. And it turned into brand new quality wine. Now, wine is used to represent two things here. The first one is it represents joy and laughter and gladness. That's what we need in the midst of our shame and in the midst of the season that we're in. It is good for us to laugh. It is good for us to have joy. It is good for us to celebrate with gladness. And the second thing is wine represents a symbol of the new covenant or a new relationship with God. We, we celebrate that in communion. Where Jesus at the Last Supper said, I, I, I drink this cup, the new covenant, in my blood for the removal of our sins. Jesus stepped into their moment of shame and addressed it. 
The way that he addressed it gave us a glimpse of how he'll address our sin. Now, I'm not contending he's going to turn water into wine, but he's got to come to you in the midst of your shame. Nothing is too small for him, and nothing is too large for him. So here's the lesson. Jesus didn't come to have us remain in our shame. He came to remove it. Let me say it again. Jesus didn't come to have us remain in our shame. He came to remove it. See, shame is something that that is easy to get wrong. It's something that seems to go hand in hand with religious environments. I remember as a young Jewish boy being raised in the temple. And the best of my knowledge, I can remember times where I felt shamed by those around me because I didn't fit into the religious mold that they wanted me to fit in. Maybe it was you in the church that you were raised in. You always felt the guilt of uh, a little bit of shame or a little bit of guilt. And some religious orders love to shame people, to motivate them to work and to press people down. But the gospel of Jesus is not like that. It's a gospel of freedom. We saw it last week with the woman at the well. Jesus comes to her and offers her living water. And he says to her, if you drink of this water, you won't thirst anymore. What was he offering her? Himself, the living water. And he doesn't shame her for the numerous husbands that she's had. Actually, he comes to her understanding that she has been divorced by those husbands. She'd been rejected. And Jesus comes to her, no rejection. He's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. No rejection. The prejudice of the day said, we can't be together. But he pushed all of that aside and went right to her heart and right to her soul. Listen, dear ones, he wants to do the same thing to you, to encounter you and change you from the inside out, not to judge you, not to condemn you, and never to shame you, but to bring you to himself. Nicodemus, he had all kinds of questions. Jesus, no ridicule at all. Even when Nicodemus said, do I need to call, crime back up into my, my mother's womb? No, no, judge, no, no judgmental heart from Jesus about the question. He just tells him, Nicodemus, you can be safe, for God so loved the world. John 3, 16, to Nicodemus. When the disciples saw Jesus turn the water into wine, they understood something. And I went back and found a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 25. Let's look at that. Isaiah 25 says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces and he will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken it. Now we all carry some kind of shame, something that we did, a decision that we made or how we treated someone. We wish we could take it back, but we can't. And as these disciples are seeing Jesus and they're remembering about the finest of wines. They're going, bing, something's going on here. This is the Jesus 
that we were prophesied about, the Messiah that was prophesied. You know, why, why, why do some people never seem to get past their shame? How do some get over their shame and, and others seem to embrace it all the time? I love Romans 8, and 34, where it says, If God says he's, his chosen ones are acceptable to him, can anyone bring charges against them? Or can anyone condemn them? And the answer is a resounding no indeed. You see, the Bible says we are completely accepted and loved by God unconditionally. If we've come to Christ as our Savior, believing he died on the cross and rose again from the dead, if we're following after Christ with all our heart, soul, mind, and our strength, we will never, ever, ever be the same again. And one of the first things that will change is the feeling of shame that we carry. And you don't have to carry it anymore once you know the truth about God's unconditional love. And yet I know people who know about God's unconditional love and still embrace shame. Romans 5.1 says, By faith we've been made acceptable to God, and now because of our Lord Jesus Christ, we live at peace with God. And there's a key. We live at peace with God. We don't just have the peace of God in our lives, but we live at peace with God. We're not fighting with Him anymore. You may have spent your entire life trying to gain the approval of people, the approval of your dad, the approval of your mom, the approval of some grandparent or some guardian or some teacher or some coach. It's influenced you in how you look and how you dress and how you talk and and the things that you do. But when you understand that God loves you unconditionally, you realize this. You don't really need to seek anyone else's approval except for God's approval first and foremost. And that's the hardest approval to get. Which one? Your own. <laughs> you see, God will come to you. You've been approved through Christ Jesus. But now for you to approve yourself, that's the hardest approval to get, to forgive yourself, to let go of your shame and of your guilt. It's good to acknowledge that God loves you, but there's more to it than that. Reconciliation has to take place, and that's our next lesson. We find joy in Christ only after we face the reason for our shame, which is our sin. We find joy in Christ only after we face the lesson or the reason for our shame and our sin. See, guilt and shame are not the same thing. G guilt says, I'm in the wrong. Guilt brings you to confession, but shame brings you to a place of condemnation. Shame says, I'm a mistake. Guilt says, I made a mistake. Shame says, I shouldn't have been born. Guilt says, I recognize I made a wrong choice. Shame means... And you no longer recognize your worth. So think about this encounter. When all the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? And Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. As I said earlier, that might seem harsh or it might seem a little strange to respond to your mom that way. But she just asked for some help from Jesus and he responds, my hour has not yet come. And that phrase always means the moment 
of suffering at the cross. His mother was thinking about the current moment. Catch this. And Jesus saw this moment in a way that connected to the ultimate moment of his life. He was showing us that, that, that we can't read this without also thinking of the cross ourselves. Pastor and author Tim Keller writes about this scene, and he says this, Yes, I can bring festival joy to this world. I can cleanse humankind from its guilt and shame. I have come into the world to bring joy, but oh, mother, I'm going to have to die to do it. Mother, for my people to fall into my arms, I am going to have to die. For my people to drink the cup of joy and festival blessing, I'm going to have to drink the cup of justice and punishment and death. There has to be honesty on our part. No denying, no covering, and no escaping. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. I'm a sinner who's lost my way, and Jesus, as we saw at the beginning of this message, is the meaning and purpose of life. We are guiltier and more flawed than we ever dared believe, but we are more accepted and loved than we ever dared hope. Shame can be the lack of parental affection, attention that leaves a child with an indelible mark of, I'm not worthy on their life. Shame arises from our past sin that seems to forever haunt us. You, you know that sin where you feel you, you even can't share it with anyone. You stay in hiding, hold up in your lonely bunker of one, never letting anyone close enough to see you, to see that, that, that part of you. But God wants to come in and be a part of all of your guilt and all of your shame. And here's the lesson, that we live free from shame now by anticipating the future. And why is this important? Because we look towards heaven. We look towards the, the ultimate feast that we will have with Jesus in heaven as he prepares a table before us in our greatest in front of our greatest enemy which is the enemy of death itself you see what you believe about the future defines how you experience the present let me say it again what you believe about the future defines how you experience the present and remember jesus at the wedding turning water into wine, watching people drink cups of wine. And he's thinking about the day where he will say in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if this cup can pass from me. What cup? The cup of death. If you're willing, take this cup from me. Edmund Clowney said that Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow so that today you and I who believe in him can sit amidst all this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. The coming joy. What's our future? Coming joy. Trusting Jesus gives us joy for today, even in the middle of adversity and pandemic and hurt and pain. Trusting Jesus means we get to participate in the great exchange. We give him our shame, he gives us his grace. We give him our guilt, he gives us forgiveness. We give him our sin and unrighteousness, he gives us his righteousness. 
We give him our confession, and he changes our eternity. It's a great exchange. I get God, he gets me. And that's why I always say, don't tell God he's getting ripped off. I mean, I get the God of heaven, the God of the universe, and he gets me. What a great exchange. But it doesn't change how fragile and how hurtful life can be. But there's no suffering or feeling of shame that can remove his presence or break his promise. And yet we are freed by hope. Because there's a stunning and never-ending joy-filled party that's coming, folks. That we'll get a day where we will stand before him. And because of Jesus being such an amazing Savior, he will forgive all of our sins. He will wipe them out. And he will have no room for shame. Because in heaven, no shame, no guilt, no sin. How does Christ need to encounter you today? As I close, I would like to invite you to take, to take your hands just like I'm taking mine right now and to visualize, if you can, taking all your shame and giving your shame to the Lord and saying, God, here's my shame. Here's what I've done in the past. Or here's how people have treated me and I feel unworthy, unloved. Jesus doesn't just want to turn water into wine. He wants to take your shame and turn it into freedom. He wants to take where you feel unworthy and let you know that you're accepted in the beloved one himself. So Lord, we give you our shame today. We give you our guilt today. We lay our sins down at your feet and invite you to save us. If we've not been saved, Lord, may we believe even right now that you died on a cross for us. You rose again from the dead for us. We desire to change our eternities. And if we've known you for a long time, Lord, maybe we know that you love us and yet we still hold on to shame. May we release that shame to you today and say, God, thank you for loving us. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving all of our sins. May you cleanse us and may you make us whole. Dear ones, don't live in shame. Give it to Jesus. And if it comes back to haunt you, Stop for a moment and give it right back to him. Because when he went on the cross, he said these words, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. But you know what to do. Go to him. Give him your shame. Whatever it is. And he will change you forever. I pray that God would bless you, that you would sense the presence of Jesus in these days ahead, and you'll continue to encounter him just as we are as a church community. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please visit us at mylfc.com for more information about our church. Thank you so much for listening.